You are listening to Art Freaks. My name's Daniel Crossan. I'm an artist based in London. I'll be sitting down with a variety of creative people to find out why they make the things they make and what lessons they've learned along the way that will help you impact the world with your creativity. Today we are joined by Olive 47. Olive 47 is a painter, muralist, street artist and designer based in LA. She has exhibited her fine art in various solo and group shows, has had her work featured in various street art publications, has done design work for numerous commercial clients, and even has work held in the permanent collection at the V&A. In this episode, we discuss the evolution of her creativity. We talk about AI as a new tool for artists. We talk about the beginnings of the street art explosion, the pressures of social media for artists trying to get their work seen, and how creativity has the power to heal. This is Olive 47. Were you an arty kid growing up? Yeah. Yeah, I was a weirdo. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> Most artists were growing up. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, my dad's an artist. So, I mean, I don't remember ever not having like pens and watercolors and things like that. My dad does like a lot of watercolor commissions like always has still does you know i think it probably started from him giving you know giving me things to to occupy myself would you work alongside him as he was making his paintings would you be like next to him painting and drawing and stuff well on the floor like he had like a drafting table and like we'd be in the room on the floor and was that a way that you and your dad connected did you go and look at art together and go to museums and things or or do you remember like a sense of validation maybe from your dad saying, oh, that's amazing and you want to do it more. Yeah, I mean, it, like definitely it was a connection, um, that and music, you know, listening to records, going and buying records. Like we would go to the record store every, um, for young people, that's vinyl. Uh, yeah. We would go to the record store like every Saturday and he would like, for like an hour, he'd just be flipping through, like finding stuff. And for like, for us being good, like we would get to like take home a single. Yeah. And your dad, your dad, is he still, is he still painting? Yeah. Yeah. He still paints. Um, he still gets commissions. Like he does a commission for the, um, Knoxville Museum of Art, um, for the tour of homes every year. He paints like three or four homes and then does private stuff. Yeah. So, and was he encouraging you? Obviously, he was encouraging you by providing all of the materials and seeing if that was something you wanted to follow. Was he? Yeah. Was he pushing you towards a creative career? No, I mean, we were kind of. I have a sister. We were kind of like, I could have done whatever I wanted. Like I like I veered creative really early. Like I was always drawing and always painting and always like doing crafts or whatever. If there was a pushing there, it wasn't a hard push. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, um, why do you think you were making stuff so much? Why did you think that you were drawn to it? I think like, honestly, I, as an adult, I think it's because of my ADHD. I know that my brain needs to make visual sense of things. Um, you know, like my, I'm always like arranging things. When were you diagnosed with ADHD? Like first officially when I was 20. Okay. Like before kindergarten. So I read really, really early, like really early. So in kindergarten, um, I used to go to like resource classes because I could read and the other kids couldn't. Yeah, it's funny. I remember in kin- kindergarten, 
like I got called out by this girl in my class and she was like, why is Olive always making a making drawings of dogs and the teacher was like well she really likes to draw and she really likes animals and you know she already knows how to write um i mean i'm sure she put it in a much more eloquent term that didn't insult the rest of my peers but um you know like i was getting called out for it like really young like always drawing always doodling there was like a compulsion maybe to to make images yeah and to always like be drawing like the things i wanted and the things i wanted to be and the things around me you know like i was always drawing like i really wanted a dog and so like i was like always drawing dogs if i wanted like certain kind of dress like which i like it was usually like princess dresses and i never got a princess dress by the way but mm. Like I'd get, you There's know, like whatever my obsession was, <laughs> you know, <laughs> next time we do this, you, you have to turn up in a princess dress in a princess dress. So can live that dream. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, at school you were drawing and drawing and drawing. Do you remember any break from that? Or you were just drawing, 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 and then high school and you're still drawing, drawing, drawing. Yeah. High school, drawing, 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 AP art, then on to art school. I went in as an illustration major and like my first quarter, my, um, they would give us mentors, you know, for the time we were in school. And my mentor, Rhea Mangeva, who just passed a couple of years ago, um, RIP Rhea, she, um, she told me, she's like, you're not an illustrator, you're a painter. And like, I didn't really understand the difference at the time. Totally understand the difference now. What's the difference? <laughs> I mean, um, for anyone listening that, 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 that thinks it's just making pictures, right? They're both making pictures. Right. A lot of people difference? do think it's all just making pictures. It, I mean, there's a different purpose, you know, there's a different, like illustrators are, I mean, and, and, and there's not, one's not worse or better than the other or whatever. Don't get me wrong, but painters are usually Illustrators are usually serving a commercial purpose and are usually illustrating a event, a, you know, a thing versus trying to capture the essence of, you know, in painting, that's why like there's abstract art because like people are trying to capture the essence of, you know, versus, you know, just trying to capture the, not really describing this well. Well, from my perspective, because I do illustration and I do what I would consider yeah, I fine both. art. So I would say like with illustra my illustration work, it's usually a little bit more face value. So yeah. this is a, a character that looks stressed and above it, it says, I'm having a stressful day. Or, mm -hmm. or, or there's a client that says, um, we like your characters and we want your characters drawn with some Nike trainers. That would be a great brief. But um, yeah. And, and with my fine art, I'm painting. I don't necessarily question it too much. I let, I let it come out, and I and I'm and I would say that my art, my fine art, communicates more of what's happening internally. So there will be a lot of subconscious stuff there. Most of the time, commercial illustration is trying to sell something. Painting mm -hmm. is trying to express something is is yeah even that's like hard it's hard isn't it because there yeah. is a blurry line between those yeah, two things it's blurry i mean like you know what comes to mind is i'm not trying to save the world with my illustrations but i am with my paintings and i don't even know what that means <laughs> you know like when i'm painting just for me you know it's it's about like the idea of like searching 
for like universal truth and like thinking about like the paintings that have come before me and the symbols that have come before me and like this whole tradition of art making and you're thinking a context a lot more of like where it's placed yeah yeah context of like the art and where i fit into the art and like and humanity and where we go as a species and you know like a lot just a lot more bigger you know, questions bigger, bigger questions yeah. that aren't necessarily easily answered you know and sometimes and and like why like that gets answered for me in a stroke of like pink paint looking at your work now you can see a lot of reoccurring symbols of animals there's a lot of that prevalent in your work for anyone that hasn't seen your work what how would you sort of describe it i guess i'd say i'm a symbolist painter first and foremost what does that mean uh, like I, it means like I, I have a set of symbols that I've been using since like for the past 25 years, um, you know, that, that have come from like my childhood, like you said, like I use the mountains a lot because I was raised on a mountain. I use like the UFO a lot because, you know, you there was a UFO. abducted by aliens. <laughs> yes, exactly. But there was actually like a house halfway up the mountain that was built to look like a UFO. And so like to go down to Chattanooga, um, you had to pass this house. So like, I would see this house, like at least two or three times a week. And I thought like, I totally thought by now all houses would look like UFOs. And Mm. I also thought like, you know, we'd have flying cars and all that stuff, but, um, None of that came true now, did it? And uh, I, I would say that the te- like seeing a Tesla, driving past a Tesla the other day and just seeing a guy sat on an iPad next to me on a motorway, it was like, it was like a moment where I was like, this is crazy. I said to my son, I was like, that car's, that guy's not driving it. The car's driving itself. And he's like, I don't care. <laughs> um, <laughs> the way that I'm seeing it is you're a, an obsessive image maker um, and you've then sort of worked and worked and worked where, you en- where you've ended up. Obviously, there's a lot of contributing factors to that. You grew up in the mountains or surrounded by nature. Thematically, that's in your work a lot. You worked as a street artist from, or still do work as a street artist and that speed of communication that you need from somebody walking past a, a, a wheat paste and, you know, making it re- simple, communicate effectively, recognizable, all of those things I imagine have impacted the way that you create. Um, I'm wondering sort of if you can pick out a few things that you can think of that like have affected your style, your your sort of recognizable style. Yeah. I mean, like, firstly, like I developed my style when I was working in design houses and I had to teach myself illustrator and, uh, you know, I just draw little animals and, you know, stuff like that. Uh, it was the time of when companies gave uh, their employees, uh, you know, corporate credit cards. And uh, one of my creative directors told me to um, make my first sticker set and use the company credit card. And so um, I did my um, pink sperm sticker um that was yay long and um that was in response to like at the time it was you know the late 90s and like mostly what you saw on the street was like um 
like street crews would go out and bomb like stickers for like hip hop bands or like trainers. And then there was like Shepherd Ferry and like tags, you know, but you didn't see like a lot of street art stickers. I just thought it would be really, it was all like really hyper-masculine. And I thought it'd be really funny to put pink sperm on the streets. Like, you know, and it's like, that's kind of guided a lot of like my street work in general is just like wanting people to have like a laugh or wanting to see it and just like have like a, a moment of happiness and like brighten their day without being like overly cute, if that makes sense. I mean, I know like a lot of my work's really cute, but like, you know, I want it to still like have like a graphic resonance to it, if that makes sense. I think it was George Condo. There's an interview with him on YouTube and he's talking about how making childlike characters that you've grown up with and have, you know, absorbed this language and communication tool of an expression of a cartoon character. It's effective. It's very easy to, to as a, for an artist to communicate an expression or a feeling using this, this language, because it's sort of programmed into all of us from growing up watching Disney cartoons and, mm -hmm. and different stuff. So I'd say like a lot of the expressions on your characters have a look of like, um, like they're com contemplating. I can't think of the right way of saying that, but yeah, contemplation. Yeah. They're, they're contemplating something. Um, there's a peacefulness to them. It, it doesn't feel so kawaii, uh, like mm -hmm. Japanese inspired. The, the language is probably inspired from elements, but it's, it feels like the tone is a little bit more thoughtful than cute. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to like, evoke feelings of like being in in a moment if that makes sense like because when you look at the street art it's like most often it's just that second when when we meditate like the goal is to find like presence like being present you know and letting all else like you know fall away and you know so it's in a way it's kind of about when you see that image for one second, all else falls away and you feel better, you know, all else falls away and you feel peaceful, you know? And so like by using like, kind of like those faces, which are sort of quite like, you know, but also like, you know, a little more like meditative, you know, still recognizable as a face, but simple, um, you know, that's something I, you know, kind of fell into, you know, um, but like kind of strive to achieve, mm. you know, have kind of used, used it again and again and developed it into something yeah. that's kind of, well, it's like in the early days I would stick stickers up and, you know, I remember <clears throat> this, this guy like wrote me and I think somebody I had sent a sticker to had put a sticker up in Chinatown, like near his mom's shop. And like, he was like, my mom loves your stickers. Like every day when she comes in, it makes her happy and asked if like I would, you know, send some stickers down there. And it's like, you know, she was like this 60 year old woman, you know, not your like typical like street art fan. And like, that's what I dig is like, I don't like that. And that's what like kind of like attracted me to street art was like, you know, back in the day you know, in the early late nineties and early two thousands, it was the anti-gallery aspect, you know, it was the idea that people that, 
you know, aren't going to go to galleries, see this art and they get art too. It wasn't about like achieving, achieving fame or money because that wasn't a, a factor then. When did that become a factor? Like when Banksy started hitting and Shepard was hitting harder, like, you know, and I'm talking about like selling and, and, and gallery directors paying more and more attention. I think when, you know, Banksy did the show with the pink elephant that toured mm. the States, like, I think that that's when like, you kind of really knew there was a lot of money in there. Yeah. You know, I mean, cause there was like before, but that was kind of the like proclamation that like street art is here and this is something that- It's a movement. It's a, it's a art um, establishment have recognized it as a movement. Exactly. Exactly. Was that about the time um, that the auction houses would start doing those street art only things? Yeah. So that, that that would have been a good opportunity for people to, to get pulled into that sort of upper echelon of, of artists. How did money affect the street art scene and the artists that were making work within it? I mean, you know, money changes everything and, you know, it brought in like a whole new wave of people who had kind of a different agenda. You know, they saw that they could profit off of being an artist. You know, I mean, we all saw like the myriads of Banksy copies. You know, it brought in a lot of predatory gallerists. Um, And then it, you know, it kind of changed like, you know, and not everybody, but, you know, it changed like fame changes people with a lot of people it brought like this exclusivity thing, which, you know, didn't exist before, you know, it, it brought the art world in. How did fame change particularly like anyone that you can think about? You don't have to say who they are, but how did it change? How did it change them or their work? With some people, it definitely led them into kind of repeating the same thing over and over. Like, I mean, I know that there's artists that have tried to like break out of like what they got famous for and the work didn't sell as well. And mm. so then they had to go like, and they still are like doing the same thing that they were doing, you know, for the last 20 years mm. because that's what sells. So, yeah. I mean, in a way it's a trap. In terms of the work that you were doing on the street, you then sort of moved from stickers um, and then you were then doing huge murals what was what was well, that? I was doing stickers that, and then paste ups. And then what was the trajectory from there? And and the reason I started doing paste ups is like because free Xeroxes in the design houses that I was working at. It's easy, cheap. I would go out during lunch, like in like the days that like I knew I was gonna go do paste ups, I would wear like skirt and heels and just go out during lunch hour and do a bunch of paste ups. And it's like a fun, easy way to get things up. Like in you know, I'm a girl, like, I don't want to go to jail. In Los Angeles at the time, if you had paint on you, you go to jail. If you had wheat paste on you, then they'd just make you take it down. Did you ever get, did you ever get arrested? No. 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 Yeah. <laughs> so, so then moving into murals, how did you get your break? Like, how did you get a, an opportunity to work on something much bigger? Um, so I've been doing, I've been painting murals since I was 20, like for, you know, private houses um, my dad does as well. Um, so I started like by assisting him on a couple of jobs. Um, so it's always kind of been in my wheelhouse. When I moved to Atlanta, there were all these buildings 
like near where my cousin lived in South Atlanta that um, were just blank canvases. And so I just started asking the business owners if I could paint on them. Were you painting for free? Yeah, some of them I would paint for free or just super low cost. Because it's just a good way of getting your work up. Yeah, yeah. And I had the spare time, you know, good way to get my work up. Mm. Awesome. Yeah. And a lot of times, like I would, you know, they'd end up giving me money. Almost all of them bought me the paint. I've seen some pictures of the really large ones on the side of like big wooden houses. Um, and I think your work works really well, those large, in, in, the, in that large sort of scale. Also, you've spoken a little bit about your commercial stuff. And recently I saw that you did uh, what looks like a massive project. I'm not sure how big the space is, but it looks huge and they've basically, you can talk about it, but they've basically given you free reign, right? You, you, you did the beer cans, you did the back behind the bar, you did the walls, you did the signage, the logos, you basically branded the entire company from top to bottom. How does that make you feel when somebody comes with you with a brief that big or does, is, is it something that doesn't phase you? It didn't really phase me. And also it came in pieces you know where did it start with start with the beer cans and then they're like oh well could yeah, you do this well, as well can, yeah so it started with the cans because it's kind of twofold so this brewery eagle rock brewery i've been doing i took over a design for them in 2020 and they're friends of mine like um we used to go raving together back in the late 90s like to the desert raves um so they're good friends of mine and their designer moved to florida and so they asked if I would take over um, for them. And I had done a mural at the brewery on the refrigeration unit that's outside. And so, yeah, I just started designing the cans and um, then designing like all the promo materials, blah, blah, blah. And this year they bought a new, um, they bought a new space in Burbank and asked me to do the branding for that and paint a mural inside. Um, one mural became two murals and a bunch of decorative wall treatments, bespoke wallpaper and a uh, wooden wall art piece. That's like the backing where they, where they pour the pints, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like a wooden cutout kind of collage, I guess. Mm. It's how I would describe it. I don't really know. Um, but yeah, like everything, like the top, the lit up top on top of the refrigerators, like everything I did, you know, all the colors, um, their social media, everything. So it's amazing that kind of job, because from an outside perspective, it's like, uh, it's so much work, but having it be drip fed, um, probably helped in terms of, I, I know that I would feel very nervous if I was approached with something like that. It's nice that you were given some time in between each thing to be like, uh, okay, I'll do another one. Yeah. I'll do another one because it's such a big project. Yeah. It's a big project, but I mean, like, you know, the owners are really chill and also like, you know, I hate using this term, but they really empowered me, you know, they trusted me and I'm really grateful for that because, you know, obviously I want to I want to do the best I can so that their business succeeds. I think also it's that it's that thing of like when when a client trusts you or they show you a sign that the thing that you've done 
is exactly what they wanted. You start getting confident and when you're confident as an artist, you're better. It's like footballers, if they are playing with confidence, they're like twice the player they are. I think it's similar with art. If you're like if you're hesitant, if you're painting and you're hesitant, the lines are a bit shaky and everything just kind of gets affected. I think confidence really helps. Amazing when yeah. a client. Also, it's just a thing where you just kind of have to like jump in and trust the process of it all, you know, and just go, okay, this is this is just happening and this is how it's going to be. And I'm just going to do it. Is your work very process driven? I mean, honestly, I would say like 60% of my process is just thought, you know, I probably think about something for like two or three weeks before I even start the sketches, you know, and then I'll start like, I'll, I'll just like collect tons and tons of like imagery, you know, to inspire me. And then, you know, kind of almost like make mood boards. And then I'll like, that gets distilled into like, you know, just sketching an illustrator. And then those get refined, you know, just this constant refinement until here's the product, if that makes sense. You know, that's how it works with the paintings too. I would imagine that there's a lot of preparation that has to go for a big mural, especially if it's for a client, because you have to show them what you're going to paint and then what you paint has to be, you know, similar. Yeah. And especially with clients, like with clients, I'm, I, I'm pretty like fail safe. I do like their, their sketch in illustrator so that we can look at the colors. We can look at the da, 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 and everything gets pretty much nailed down and then I'll project it. Like, you know, I used to grid it back in the day, but that takes so much time. It's exactly what they agreed to. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So that there's, that cuts out so much like potential weirdness. for disaster. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm getting a, a better idea of terms of like where you're coming at from the work, what it looks like and some background to you as an artist in terms of like art seems to have been your only thing that you would like end up doing. So what would you be if you weren't an artist? If I didn't do like visual art or music, like I've said, I've said often, I've said a priest, <laughs> yeah, maybe a teacher, but, um, yeah, the problem with the teacher part is like interacting with other people. Do you like children? Um, I like like small groups of children, you yeah. know, it's difficult like teaching a difficult thing. I think for a lot of people, mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it is dependent on the school. My sister was a teacher for a long time and she's, you know, some of the schools she worked in were really hard. It was just impossible to maintain that kind of work for a long time. And then, you know, there was the, the good schools that she really enjoyed um, working in and they were a joy to work in. She miss, you know, was was always sad if the kids, you know, when the kids finished and moved on to the next class or if she you know, when she ended up leaving. Yeah. I mean, my thing about like, you know, if I taught, I'd probably like to teach at like the university level, like youngest high school. Um, but I mean, my thing is, is like, you know, with my ADHD, like the thing I'm like really sensitive to is like noises. And so like when a lot of people are talking at the same time or like children are screaming or like throwing fits, like, yeah, <laughs> I know all about <laughs> that. Know? I know all about that. I, I I was wondering whether I, um, there is someone I know, someone very close to me that 
suffers from uh it, it has been diagnosed with this i can't remember the exact name but basically it's like an oversensitivity to mm-hmm. stimuli like noise and i find that if my kids are making a lot of noise the tv is on and someone tries to talk to me zero chance that i'm able to continue that mm-hmm. or or even to tune into what the, what is being said it just becomes mm-hmm. like a like a a mess of kind of noise and then my brain just goes no no we're not doing this if i'm in a social situation where i need to sort of pretend that i know what's going on I have to pretend <laughs> and Ooh. it gives me anxiety of the fact of like, oh, potentially I'm going to have to do that tonight when I go to that event. Yeah. Yeah. That's why you seem to be like sitting, sitting <laughs> against the wall. Cause like nine times out of 10, like if there's music and lots of people talking and lots of stuff going on around, like mm. I'm just trying to like figure out where my center is and yeah, just to, to get comfortable yeah, just to get comfortable and be able to like hear what people are saying to me instead of being like, oh shit, there's a squirrel, you know? I think maybe a lot of people deal with that <laughs> in the UK, I was going to say, because when I have a few drinks, then I feel like the edge of that's gone. And if someone's talking to me and there's noise, I can still tune in more to what that person's saying, uh, but then becomes a little bit of a crux in social situations, which I don't like. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's a, that's a difficult thing. The, the larger work that you do is often in like mandala form. I'm interested in these big mandalas that you paint because it, it's very much in line with your, uh, trying to inject peace into like urban environments or environments that you feel might need it. When did you start making the mandalas? Um, I started those when I was in Atlanta or at least publicly. Mm. Um, it kind of started when I met this, um, Tibetan monk, his name's Tenzin Sherpa Lama. Um, it's a cool name. Yeah. Well, he's from Tibet. I met him through one of my clients and actually had him, um, bless a couple of my murals. Um, but we'd become friends and he's like very funny and he's a teacher, like doctor, like they kind of take on different, um, vocations throughout like the monastery he's a healer you know he's always since we met he's always told me that he believes like i can heal through my work i started looking at like a lot of like tibetan art and you know indian art and my work's always kind of dealt with like belief systems and my interests have always been with belief systems you know from being raised in the south and you know there's so much like fervent, like Southern Baptist and, you know, and not being raised in that kind of church, you know, and having an outside view of that. And then, you know, being exposed to like Joseph Campbell's power of myth in college and learning about like all the different similarities and stories. So you weren't, you weren't sort of prejudiced learning about new religions and stuff. You were very open and receptive to it and allowed that to come into your work. And I'm really interested in like the symbolisms and, you know, and when you look at like the different symbolisms across like different religions, you find so many similarities. It was just like something that, you know, he and I were talking And I was, and he said something about like me making a mandala and like, you know, and I thought about like how, how to do that, like in my own way without doing the, what's the typical thing, because, you know, I'm not Indian, I'm not, you know, whatever. And looking at like 
mandalas from different cultures and and trying to kind of find a way to not just like make it my own, but like find something that I can, that I could create that flow through, you know, like anything in my work, like it's always cycling through. Right. And like, that's really like what a lot of my work is about is like, you know, these cycles, like the life cycle, life, birth, death, sex, life, birth, death, sex, you know, and that's the same with a mandala, you know, it's like, it's it's about like the cycles of life, you know, in samsara and, you know, and it's almost like a machine, you know, in a way like that you focus on. And and through that, like, you know, you can meditate, you know, whether it's consciously sub or subconsciously, you know, but it's it's a point of focus, like the way that they're constructed with the concentric circles, like your eye is like automatically trained to focus on concentric circles it's a, it's almost like a device or a machine when you when you say there's that they cycle through your work why do you think that they keep coming back it doesn't matter you know what i mean it's just part of the process and it, but i mean i think it's just like you know like i said it's like a circle like life is a circle like patterns always keep repeating like whether it's like art or you know types of people or whatever like patterns constantly repeat in our lives till we break or change them you know do you believe in reincarnation mm, I, I mean i believe in everything and nothing you know what i mean so i definitely believe it's possible you know and i think you know i i am very interested in the the idea of re reincarnation and reincarnation until you know you break that cycle or trauma or pattern or whatever you know and go to the next step I always wonder what that next step is because I have had uh, psychedelic experiences, not like not millions of them, but I've had some where it's felt like I've passed away and that mm -hmm. I'm uh, being asked whether I want to go back or start a new journey. My fear brings me back here that, that my inability to let go of this being so temporary is keeping me here. My my lack of like wanting to accept that the that it's temporary and that that it's um, illusionary. That it's that thing of like, okay, go back. You go. You go, you're gonna still have to learn that, and then you know, maybe you don't learn it and then maybe you get reincarnated. I found, I find reincarnation really fascinating. And I found, I found that the idea that you kind of pass away and go to a, a heavenly place and everything is fine. And you're there with everyone that you love, um, is very, is very beautiful, but I don't see the point of like one, one go at it. And, you know, regardless you're forgiven and go to heaven to spend eternity in perfectness it doesn't kind of it, it makes sense that there is this task that gives a lot of meaning to life to yeah. rather than answering like these are the things that we command you to act by and if you can if you even if you fuck up and say you're sorry you can still go there <laughs> but this mm -hmm. other way is seems like a lot more it seems like a lot more logical in terms of like you know, you get, you get a go, you better try and get there. If you can't get there, you got to go again and you're going to have to keep going again and again and again until you get there. So you might as well get there as soon as you can. Obviously I don't believe it, um, deeply enough or else I'll be sat 
meditating for nine nine hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> I asked you about reincarnation because there is these sort of. Um, the, the, I, I would say that that's sort of symbolism from Eastern mythology, uh, mm-hmm. from Hinduism. Um, maybe I'm getting that completely wrong, but that you see, you see uh, mandalas in that sort of part of the world, mm-hmm. and. I'm interested in that link between what we're talking about now and what what you were talking about before about injecting peace. And I think like talking about art in the way that like maybe Rick Rubin talks about art being a service to God. I wonder how sort of how in line you are with that. That's a lot of questions and thoughts at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. So reincarnation, I actually think it's a choice. You know, I've had similar experiences to yours. Mm. where, you know, there's definitely another place where there is the oneness, you know, and we realize that we are one organism. We are all one connected being. We can either live in love or fear, you know, and it's a choice. And that's really all there is to it. Why do we choose fear? Why do we choose fear so much? You know, I think it's a subconscious thing. I think it's, I think... And I think some people just don't know any better. I think sometimes it's trauma, you know, the trauma that happens as humans. Yeah. And and sometimes the trauma like becomes worse and it's acted on worse and worse and worse. And that's why like sometimes the patterns have to be broken because I feel like if it was like a conscious choice, of course, everybody would, well, not everybody, but I would hope that most would choose love, you know. I think people are bit too busy to think about those choices. And also it's a mystical kind of choice when you're talking about it in terms of reincarnation and choosing whether to be reincarnated or to somehow transition into this next state of being. I'm fascinated by the similarities, just like you, in terms of like religions and belief systems. They're all sort of linked in this same way. And then you can have these experiences that bring such clarity and support and evidence of that. I think channeling that into your art after having those experiences is inevitable. You know, in those moments of deep meditation, you know, the the clearest voice just keeps telling me to make art, you know, and keeps telling me that, that that's the path, that's my act of service, that, that it helps people, you know, and, you know, and like I said, even if it helps you forget, even if it helps you be present for a second, then that's like just one, one second of removal of the ego. So, you know, in a way that's a realization of that. And, and I guess the, the path is to just keep doing that and keep doing that and try to reach more people and not necessarily through fame, but, you know, you know, every new person that sees it, sees the message. Maybe that spurns them to create. Maybe it spurns them, you know. I've got it. I've un- I know, I know, I know. You've What you've got to do is you've got to go viral on TikTok. So you, <laughs> so you have to stand with your back to the camera and slowly turn around with a painting. And mm-hmm. that way you'll reach the most people and you'll have... Uh, all I post on uh, all I post on TikTok is uh, sleeping cats, by I've the way. I've seen those videos. They're... They're captivating. Sleeping cats with ambient music. I'm personally conscious of talking about NFTs too much because I've talked about them 
with other artists over and over. It's interesting that being that you were drawing so much and painting so much and working outside so much that now you have delved into the world of NFTs and and uh, digital art and crypto art. What are you, what were your thoughts when you first discovered NFTs? Was it something that you were were sort of confused by? Um, I know that they were just they were just talked about again and again and again in 2021. Well, I mean, not really. Like, well, first of all, let me clarify. I've been doing digital art since the late 90s. Um, you know, like I've always done like art in my downtime working at because I worked at like a lot of like entertainment and music labels, um, design agencies. And I mean, there's always downtime between projects. So I would feel that downtime by like, just drawing. Is that like with a Wacom tablet and Illustrator? No, with my finger or a oh. mouse. I draw with my um I draw with my finger on my laptop on the trackpad. Um yeah. That's hard to do. <laughs> it's not that hard. I mean, I started it when I was traveling a lot and like I would like the, you know, like Wacom tablet or um, you know, mouse would break. And so it was a way of like kind of like minimizing everything I need to be able to do the work I need to do. And so I've always been doing digital art. I've always done like animation. Like I was actually like on on a focus group for um, Flash, like Micromedia Flash back in the day. Mm. Um, so like that, the idea of making digital art wasn't like something that was novel to me. Um, and people were talking about doing like NFTs to me, like a couple years before I actually got into it, you know, I was just too busy with other work. I was also like, you know, I was working for different companies, just trying to make a living. Mm -hmm. Um, after I moved to Los Angeles and wasn't doing as much mural work and then, you know, the pandemic came. Mm. And so we were all in our houses pretty much doing nothing. I, I mean, I actually did have a couple of like private garden mural commissions during that time. Mm -hmm. Um, but so, you know, we were all doing more digital work, or at least I was. And so, you know, when Clubhouse and everything came along and, you know, there was a lot more, all of a sudden there was a lot more like education on the web for artists, how to get into it. And I was like, oh, I can just like use some of this stuff I've been doing, not necessarily the actual pieces, but like repurposing, taking some of those ideas, that kind of stuff. Um, it was like, I already had NFTs ready. And so it wasn't that big of a jump for me because I had friends in crypto before and they'd been trying to get me into it for years. Um, I'm just not like, I'm not dumb or anything. Um, I'm just cautious and I'm not rich. Like, <laughs> you know, I didn't like, you know, I'm, I'm particularly cautious with money. It was expensive to, to make mint artwork onto the blockchain during 2021 mm -hmm. well i mean even beforehand like investing in crypto in the early days and so forth and you know it seemed like one of those like kind of like scary things like silk road you know? <laughs> like if you remember those days of like you know hearing you know infamous deals going down it was all kind of lumped into that stuff so it was like it was it was just like that things were kind of coming more into the light well nft's I came into Clubhouse and one of the reasons I joined Clubhouse, there was another artist saying Clubhouse was a really good way of networking with other artists. 
Um, so it was nothing to do with NFTs. And then I think like two weeks before I got into Clubhouse, I found out what NFTs were. And I was like, what I could, I, you said it sort of seamlessly came to you. And I understand that in terms of the making, making the work, regardless of these big prices, just the fact that a digital thing could be worth something rather than having it as something you sell to someone to use forever you sort of give it away it's this thing of like it's like selling it as a painting that was a, a difficult sort of psychological leap for me like how where's the value and i have to really had to keep going over over it that's one of the things i think people like to tarnish it with scam because it's very difficult to 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 give value to something that's digital. Yeah, well, and also it doesn't help that there are a ton of scams in crypto. It, it doesn't help at all. No, it doesn't yeah. help. And not you know, just... And a ton of people like copying work. So it's really hard, you know, even though like the blockchain is supposed to be all about like being t able to authenticate your work. Like, well, if somebody is like, copying somebody else's work then they're just authenticating a copy you know what i mean you know you hear so many people say well i'm in it for the tech but i like i really am interested in the tech you know i'm interested in the tech of like you know a where crypto goes you know be like where art fits into that you know because i don't think it's just jpeg you know mm. um and i don't necessarily think it's the metaverse and certainly not like the metaverse as it is just now you know mm. because you know, we're not all gamers. Not not all of us want to like strap a wearable on our head. You know, a lot of us think that's creepy. But you know, there has to be like wide case usage for all of it. And I think that there will be. Like I've discovered a lot of really cool artists and art and and figured out, you know, or been shown like so many different ways of making generative art, you know, that I'd never even think about, you know, or code art, you know, that, I mean, obviously I've seen before, but just the way, the ways that a lot of different people approach it. Um, so, I mean, that's really exciting. Um, you know, and I don't necessarily think NFT should be discounted. Like I see it, you know, because, you know, all people know about is board apes and, you know, that's its own thing. You know, that's not, that's not everything. I think it's interesting. You spoke about like the metaverse, not realizing itself in the way that people are kind of imagining it now. Uh, mm -hmm. and immediately I thought of like, uh, Zuckerberg talking about the, the change of Facebook to meta and he was in these sort of really boring digital rooms. Um, and like, oh, this is how we're going to meet now. And, you know, have you seen this game and we're going to like be playing a game in this reality and this reality is a meeting and i'm like someone's showing up to a to a meeting as some sort of like monster and i'm like imagine turning up to an interview in the metaverse <laughs> as a monster like you're gonna you're not gonna get the job mm. um <laughs> i think I, I agree i agree a lot about what you've said i think i've discovered a lot of artists i think the well, I mean, the community actually, what, what kind of occurs to me like when you say that is like i think a lot and, and maybe i'll get in trouble for this but like i think a lot of like what that shows is that like a lot of the big players in spaces like that like there's just a lack of imagination 
I'm not talking about the artists, but I'm talking about like the businesses. Like that's what they need artists for is the imagination because yeah, nobody wants to show up to a business meeting as a monster. That's fucking stupid. I mean, they might want to, but they just might not get the job. It's yeah, like Yeah, the- well they might not get the job and they might <laughs> they might cause a medical emergency, you know. Have you seen the guy on TikTok <laughs> who does interviews and then he's like eating and she's like you can't eat in the interview and he's like I'm not eating. And he's like eating. <laughs> it's very, very funny. It's worth a watch. He does stuff like he goes on to Zoom calls. He does inappropriate stuff. And he's not, it's not like, uh, it's the uh, the funny part is not the fact that he's doing inappropriate stuff. It's the fact that he then pretends he hasn't done it. And everyone around him's like, he's done that. <laughs> he has done that. And then they don't, you know, it's that social thing of like, how far are we allowed to tell him uh, he has done that. <laughs> Maybe he won't do it again, and then he does it again. Um, no, that sounds brilliant. Yeah, the, the, I don't. I don't. Um, I don't really go on social media a ton. No, you know, like I and I've been limiting my social media um, intake a lot more. Yeah, intake a lot more. Um, you know, as I mentioned, like I only post um, sleeping cat videos with ambient music on my TikTok, and I don't even really look at other TikToks. Yeah. Um, you know, if somebody links me somebody some something funny, of course I'll look at it, but I don't scroll through. I go on Twitter in the morning. I say good morning. I log off. You know, I might go on one. You know, I'll check messages if I can. Same with Instagram. Um, I I think that social media is harmful. I think it's harmful for our attention spans. I think it's harmful for um, our self-esteem. I think it is, um, I, I think it's, I just think it's harmful for our brains in general. Is that something that you've kind of like, you tried to use social media and then you found that it wasn't working for you personally and you, and you stopped? Yeah. Because I mean, I've been an early adopter of social media since the beginning. I'm like, when I was working at Yahoo music back in the late nineties, like, and I used to like, be one of the chat room moderators. I've been chat room moderator for like so, several companies. And I and I do see like the advantage in, of it, like the global communication, etc. But I think what's happening now with corporate worlds entering social media, like it's destroying things. You know, it's giving it's giving people these like distorted ways of how they should look, how they should act, how what they should eat. Do you think that it's a, a useful tool to exploit to to get uh, attention for whatever you're doing? I mean, obviously it's a useful tool for that. What I'm saying is like, as an artist, you kind of have to use it, right? Right. So how do you how do you navigate that relationship where you're like it's harmful and I it's pissing me off to use it but also I'm an I'm an artist and people need to see my work I think it's about recognizing like your boundaries and I know boundaries is overused these days but I mean I think it really is about like recognizing your boundaries recognizing like what makes you feel comfortable like who you are as an artist not comparing yourself to others usage you know, it's like I know artists who schedule their TikToks for the week they've got 20 going out so you know, it's just like a constant barrage and I'm not like calling out anybody specific. Um, cause tons of people do it. And, and it's like, it's, it's exhausting, you know, it's exhausting to see. I don't know. Like, I mean, it seems exhausting to do. And for me, that's not what my work's about. Like, you know, I'm a, take a couple pictures, maybe take a picture and process whatever, you know, but it's about the authentic experience of creating. And I feel like if I'm documenting the whole thing, like then I'm spending more time on like 
minding on how I'm documenting my process than I am on the actual like getting into the flow and getting into the play and and losing myself in the artwork you know because like that's the entire point is to like become present within the become present within the the making the the reel that you make for instagram should not par next to the making of the art you know it yeah. shouldn't it, it shouldn't like and i and i know that so many artists think like this where they're like ah oh, i'm going to sit down and do some drawing oh I need to show everyone that I'm drawing. What I find with culture is that things get saturated with, with social media as well. It's moving faster. So things get saturated and then they get boring and just wouldn't be seen. They're doing it a year later, but they have to go through a year of like everyone doing the same thing. Um, and that's tiring as well. I think for artists, it's like tiring to have to come up with the content. Uh, it's tiring then to s sort of you compare yourself to the other the, to the metrics because that's what th that's what the apps give you to keep you hooked in making content because that's how it works. So you need to keep making content. So you need to keep. And you're like, well, it's not done as well as I thought it would do that one. And you're looking at other people's that are doing really really well. And you're like, okay, I'll have another stab at this, but maybe I'll adopt this a little bit. And that, that doesn't work. And you're like, okay, well, I'll just do a, I'll just do a piece where I'm standing with my back to the camera. And then I turn around with a, a painting and then I'm like, well, content creation is an art form. And then it just feels like I'm making shit content because that's what works. And that's a struggle. I think everyone, everyone has, it's not really something that we, we want so I, yeah, I'm, I, I like the fact that you're saying this is, this is enough. This is my boundary. Was there a point, was there ever a point where you felt like this is out of control? I need to form this boundary. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think it's like a conscious choice of how, like we we want to spend our energy. Right. And like, you know, there was a certain point where, you know, I just felt like I just constantly felt like I wasn't doing enough even though I was doing so much, I just constantly felt like I wasn't enough. And that's bad. You know, that's really bad. It's bad for you mentally. It's bad. You know, I mean, I feel like that anyway. I don't need fucking yeah. social media to tell me that I'm already exactly. struggling with my brain telling me that. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't, I don't need that. Like, I don't need to feel bad when I go on Twitter. I don't need to feel bad when I go on Instagram. So I don't need to go on Twitter. I don't need to go on Instagram. What I need to do is do things that make me feel good, like go in the garden, work on the artwork, hang out with the cats, you know, make music, listen to music, you know, walk around the house, making up songs, you know, whatever you like, you know, eat good food, hang out with friends. But like, in fairness, if that was, con <laughs> if that was contained into a 15 second video, that would be really good content. <laughs> Just think about it, right? Start Just the day, making music, you're like, look at this creative powerhouse and you only need to see a second of each thing. So you, you would only need to press record and then stop. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm being, I don't know if facetious is the right word, but. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, let's say let's say that's right. Social media is inevitably a, a really good tool to get mm -hmm. to get um, noticed, and getting noticed is sort of half the battle with art, isn't it? We've entered into what I feel like getting uh, something viral on social media is equally as important as I mean, it's it's it gets you the attention quicker mm -hmm. than anything else was sort of ever possible. 
So everybody's trying to do it. Um, I, I, there's a, there was a piece of content I shared on Instagram, which was Erica Badu talking. And she said, there's three types of artists. The first type of artist, it pains them to make the art. It connects mm-hmm. to something so deep to them that they can't not make it. They are like the true artists. Then you have the second type of artist, which is the artists that copy the first type of artists and they end up being the richest ones. Mm. And then you have the third type of artists, which are the backing dancers, which are basically subservient to the second type of artist. I'm probably butchering what she said, but I, th- I found it very interesting, those first yeah. two types of artists, because in, in social media, there, were, there was somebody that was like, okay, the algorithm's asking me to keep people engaged, but I need to show my art. A very simple mechanism for that is like, I'm showing you the back of the canvas and you know that within the first second, you know that I'm going to show you the front. You might as well stick around to see mm-hmm. me turn around slowly to see if it's any good. Um, then the video ends. It's got hundred percent view rate. It goes viral. Then now when I see that, I'm like, piss off. Like, I don't want to mm-hmm. see your painting. I've seen enough people do it. Like, please stop doing it. Um, mm-hmm. but if it works, I don't know. It, I can't bring myself to do it. Maybe I can do it. Why not? Why don't I just do well, it? I mean, here's the other Why thing. Why am I like... being so like uppity? It's just a fucking 10 second video. Maybe I shouldn't worry about anything like that. Yeah. But I mean, here's the other thing, like I've always struggled with is like, I don't want to show myself, you know, I mean, that's why I'm wearing sunglasses, you know, like, I think the art should be what speaks for itself. And so often, especially in social media, the artist gets confused with the art or the artist's image drives the the likes, you know, I mean, that's why you see like hot girl with the painting, you know, like, like you don't need to be wearing a bikini to show your artwork, like, mm. but they know it's going to get like 10,000 likes you know, but, but, but what people aren't looking at isn't the artwork, you know? Yeah. And I kind of like, it, it's sad. I mean, maybe, maybe there's a part of me that's like, don't do it. Like you're, you're shit doing that. I don't want to blame the artist for that because they're doing what they need no. to do. And you know, if there's, if there's prejudice against like female artists and they feel like that's the only way, I don't want to sort of judge them negatively for that. Right. Um, and maybe the like annoyedness comes from I can't do that. <laughs> well, and I mean, and for me, I feel would sad I? that I that's like, as a female, I feel sad that that's a path to success. Well, that's even a requirement. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's fucked up. You know, it's fucked up that like, like sexuality has, I mean, sex sells, right? But like, it's fucked up that sexuality has to sell something that's supposed to be something loftier. Like art is supposed to be something loftier. You know, it's supposed to be the service to God and, and, you know, people are selling it with their bodies, you know, like it's fucked up, you know, it's certainly not anybody doing it, you know, like they see it because it works. Like they're seeing it because there's so many examples of it. It's actually interesting. It's complex. It's interesting because I, I immediately thought about music and I thought sex sells so many artists through, through the whole time I've been alive and before. Yeah, it's not new. No, it's not. And I like, do you say to Madonna, like, oh, you're less of an artist because of the way that you sort of embraced certain aspects of that? I don't know. Maybe you, maybe you'd say, I'm not going to, I'm not judging you and saying you're terrible, but I maybe don't respect you as much as I respect Bjork. (laughs) Or, or not even. 
even that, but it's just... I'm cutting that out. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's not necessarily that I, that I don't respect them. It's more like, I'm sorry you felt you had to do that. It's not mm. necessary. It's yeah, not, yeah, who, okay. you know, if this is about your art, I want to see your art. Like, I'm sorry you, I'm sorry that you feel that this is the way you have to sell your art. AI. Should we talk about AI artists? I just, ha I just spoke to Peter the Roman. He was, he was the first episode of this podcast. And I find Peter's work interesting because he's feeding his own work into the AI. You could not tell me it's Peter's work and I'd know it's Pe Peter's work. Mm -hmm. but what I don't appreciate is artists saying, this is my work. And it's like, that doesn't look like your work. You can do sculpture and then the next thing can be a painting and the next thing can be a thing, but it has to come from this same sort of voice, early AI art. I was looking at it going, it's all coming from the same voice. So it's not your art, it's the AI's art. A lot of people will disagree with, with this, but also a lot of those people have a lot to gain from, from the opposite of what I'm saying monetarily because they're trying to get people to buy stuff that they're making with giving prompts. Right. What did you think when you first played with it, I guess is a good question, isn't it? Well, when I first played with it. <laughs> Kill it. <laughs> I didn't know. No, I, I was amazed at its lack of ability to draw hands. <laughs> but uh, mm -hmm. but um, I think there's like some, like Peter's work and Ashira she plugs her own work into it and has, you know, comes out with some, I think it's a really interesting tool for artists, but I mean, like anything, like we've been talking, like, I think it also provides cheat codes, you know, I think it's all about intent, you know, and I think that's what it really boils down to. Like when most artists, I think it's all about intent and it's the intent of the prompter, the intent of the artist. I, I've definitely played with it, like for ideas. I see, I, I kind of see both ends. I mean, like as a designer, I know that a lot of like my like former colleagues, like I freelance almost exclusively now, um, are concerned with like modular design and AI design taking over certain aspects of the process, which I mean, it, it, it can and it will be. And that's just, that's a reality. But I think like that makes the designer's job one to, I mean, it A kind of makes it to where you kind of have to prove your talent, like that, that you have a voice in design, you know, and the AI does the production. You, you almost have to like exaggerate your taste yeah. to do something yeah. that AI couldn't do. When AI sees that example be commercially successful and tries to replicate that, you've already moved on. You've already, right. you're already pushing the boundary of what your voice is. A lot of the fine artists I know don't necessarily understand what AI does. You know, it kind of sucks that a lot of, or certain AI was trained on certain artists' work. And so I think some artists' styles have it worse than others, you know, as far as like being easily replicated right now in AI work. Yeah. Um, but I don't think it's like an all across the board concern for all artists. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, not it's right like, now. Yeah, I agree. Not right now. It's never going to replace the human touch. Like, it's just not. It's about fear, you know? And, you know, when people fear things, they don't try to understand it. I try to look at it as a tool. Like, I try to look at it, you know, I, I just had this, I'm in the middle of a, um, commission, painting commission. And, 
you know, I was having a lot of, you know, kind of trouble getting into it because I haven't painted in a while, except for like murals for other people. Funny enough, paintings are different. You know, paintings are a very different mindset. And so like I plugged a lot of the prompts because the the client had, you know, a few things they really wanted in the work. And I, and I pr- plugged those prompts in the AI. And then like, I just did doodles based on those prompts. And my doodles don't look anything like you know, what came out of the all. AI. The painting doesn't look like anything that came out of the AI, but it just kind of helped push that process along. If you spend 20 minutes writing a prompt and it spits out something you don't like, you're like, okay, back to the drawing board. What do I like about that? What do I... And the refining process of actually getting something that AI spits out that you really want and is really usable it's probably quite a it's quite a long process i know that i personally have from using it have never got anything that i ever I, even i want to be surprised like peter the roman he feeds his own work in and gives it loads of stuff to do and then they you know to look at and then it spits it out and he's surprised and he's enjoying that the the thing of being surprised i like being surprised by my materials and if this is a tool, I don't like the surprises it's giving me. It's it's um, it's just not my work. It's not m- me. It's not me. Mm-hmm. I've tried feeding my own work in, and it just sort of tries to like it trace around the drawing I've given them. It doesn't realize it can't look at my drawing and see what I see when I look at that and imagine it as a toy. It can't design yeah. the toy. It doesn't have that ability. Yeah, and I mean, and like with your work, you know, I think there's such a feeling of like spontaneity and play. I think that's not something that AI is capable of. I mean, you can try to say, but but by asking someone to be spontaneous. Then, is the, you know, you can't be spontaneous no. with intention. It no. just has to happen. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people will use AI in ways that surprise us and produce things that we, we love and that become culturally, culturally relevant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been asking that, it to write recipes for me. I mean, it's quite good at stuff like that. Yeah. But it's only yeah, pulling it's them off, off the data it's got. It's <laughs> just giving you some old. Well, I, I feed it. What I do is I prompt it with things I have in the house. You know, I asked it to make me a veggie burger recipe with like the things I had in the house. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. You know. Yeah. And so it was it being did... creative in that respect. Yeah. So it was creative in that respect. And I mean, there were a few things I had to tweak, but for the most part, it did a good job. And it's like, I think that for purposes such as that, as like streamlining your day-to-day living, giving new ideas, that kind of stuff. Like I use it sometimes for writing with the, um, with the brewery. Cause I do like most of the copywriting for like the press releases, social media, blah, blah, blah. Like sometimes I just like, I'll want like three or four variations on like something I've written. I might like Frankenstein that together with what I've written. Sometimes it's just like, it's that like, person that you don't want to call at 2am to get another opinion. I haven't been able to get something I like from it. Copy wise idea for, for a name for this podcast. I tried a name for an NFT collection, just nothing it was giving me was, it was just like, I was just like, it's, you're not, it's not creative. It doesn't have that next step of thinking yet. Um, so that's, that bringing us to the future of the world, the AI led future of the world. What's the future of uh, Olive 47 looking like? Do you have any like plans for the rent rest of the year and uh, and beyond? Well, I'm working on uh, that painting commission and I stretched five extra canvases to go along with that. They're all inspired by this painting commission, but they can go known style to abstraction. I'm just going to like 
open it up to let it play. And it's like the first, it's the first body of work I've like really produced since 2019. I am planning to like try to produce about 20 paintings out of that series. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty fast painter. I, I, I once did a show of 19 paintings in three weeks. So, you know, it just kind of depends on, um, if the, if the muse catches me, um, commercially, like, still working for the brewery. I'm, I'm planning to do like some mural work over at the tap room in the next like month or two after it's not so hot anymore. Cause it's just like, I, I hate painting in the heat. Like I'm really heat sensitive now, you know? And when you're like, one thing that a lot of people don't realize about like painting murals in the heat is that like when you're within about three feet of a wall, the temperature is reflecting off the wall is about 10 degrees hotter than your ambient temperature and the rest of, you know, the space. And so, you know, if it's 90 degrees, it's 100 degrees. I, I have fainted like three or four times from painting murals, like totally drinking my water, just too hot. You know, I'm, I'm 50, so I'm not, I'm not like trying to hurt myself. I'm trying to... <laughs> and when you do hurt yourself, when you're getting older... Um... I find this, I'm not saying you're getting older. I just mean when I, uh, when I do something, my back goes, seizes up for two weeks. And when I was in my twenties, I didn't have these kinds of issues, but. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I try to do like yoga for my back three times a week and I ride an exercise bike like five times a week just for like half an hour, just to, um, loosen up. And it's like in my living room so that like, I can't be like, oh, it's too hot outside, not going to go for a walk or, you know what I mean? Like it's in front of my face and like I ride my bike and do watch podcasts, whatever. Bad Friends, Scissor Brothers, watch those. Um, I love Bad Friends. Yeah, it's, it's the best. So yeah, I toy with moving back to London in the next year or so. You know, I, I visited after not having been there for 11 years last year and, you know, really, really missed the air you know um the cool like, non non uh, 100 degrees <laughs> yeah cool non 100 degrees uh getting caught in the rain uh unprepared you know there's there's certain places and locations you know you visit and you just feel like calm you know an affinity for them i'm i'm um i'm a massive fan of london but I'm finding it that it's it's becoming for this particular part of my life a difficult place to live. Mm -hmm. Little things, but just costs adding up and adding up and adding up. Space costs and needing to like you know be near certain things. When you're younger, being near certain things is quite important. But mm -hmm. I don't really go out anymore, so I just yeah I I I think I'm ready to move. I'm thinking maybe of moving somewhere near the sea. We started talking about London at the beginning of this interview. We've kind of gone through early life, obsessively drawing um, an affinity for nature, how that found, you know, sort of collided to making your work that you're making um, uh, and, and your journey through street art. And there's so much stuff I know about you that I haven't really been, been able to touch on, um, you know, like you did a toy and, uh, you've made some merch stuff and you've, you've designed for all these other things that we haven't talked about. I imagine some of the mural festivals that you you've participated in have 
countless stories that could be shared. Um, but I think like looking at your work and talking to you, there's something that sticks out to me, which is this sense of devotion to your art, that it's sort of always been the thing that you were meant to do and it's always called you. And people don't always listen to that calling or at least life gets in the way and kicks them in the ass so much that they don't, they're not able to, and it just, they fall out of the habit of making art and you've kind of throughout your life never sort of given up and have had to sort of change location and start again. And then, you know, you're, you're open to working within crypto art and stuff, even though it might look a bit scammy, you're like, you explore things, you have a, an enthusiasm for, um, new things and new experiences, uh, all the while with this focus on devotion and trying to remain sort of true, authentic and present, and then gift that feeling of presence to, uh, to the people that experience your art. You make me sound so virtuous. <laughs> You're a saint, Olive 47. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, so yeah, I, thank you very much for joining me for the conversation. I hope that, um, that by listening to this, people have, have sort of understood you more, understood your work more. We'll take a second look at it or a first look at it. Where's the best place for people to communicate with you and, and to see your work and stuff? Um, I'm on Instagram at all 47 and my website is all of 47.com. Um, I'm on Twitter too, but don't go to Twitter or X or whatever it's called now. <laughs> you don't want to go there. It's a, it's a battlefield of engagement it's, farming yeah, it's right a, now. It's just it's a, mess. A, big mess, a big mess of mental illness. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I'd say Instagram or my website. I think those are the best places to get a grip on who I am. Well, thank you very much once again. And I'll speak to you soon. All right. All right bye. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to follow our guests on whichever social media platform you enjoy using most. Links are in the usual places. Links to all my social media accounts can also be found at the bottom of every single page over on my website at danielcrossan.com. The best way to support this podcast is to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Please leave a review and even consider sharing the podcast with a friend. Special thanks goes to Low Fox for producing the music for the podcast. Thank you very much again for listening. See you next time. Take care.